It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello, how are you feeling? I'm feeling fine. I'm feeling trepidatious. Oh, go on then. Well, we, we have news, don't we? Yes, we do. And it's about the future of the podcast. Yes, it is. Now you have an email. Yes, and it's from Gillian. And she says, can we talk about the elephant in the room? And the message is, Kia Ora, Jeff and Ed. I hope you're both well. As always, I love listening to your podcast. And I want to congratulate you both on six fabulous years. Here's the uncomfortable part. Please can we talk about the elephant in the room? Is the podcast at risk of being discontinued if Ed finds himself back in government next year? Hang on a minute. If if Ed finds himself back in government next year, I didn't think that was what this was about. Go on. Well, look, we we all know that there's likely going to be uh, an election next year. Yeah. In um in my neighborhood watch Facebook group. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking I'm seriously thinking of running to be one of the admins. Yes. And I just feel that the the listeners deserve energy and focus and consistency and the listeners or the neighborhood watch. The listeners, I mean it would be unfair. I can't promise that I would be able to do that during a campaign. And then after that, I guess my my duty would be to the voters and I don't know if I would be able to commit to being here every week if at all. This this is the quandary I've been playing out in my head. Is is that not what Gillian is writing in about? Well, she actually mentions that too in the email. Right. And she's emailing from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and she says that listeners all over the world will be wondering about the same question, given the Neighbourhood Watch situation that you've reported on. Listen, it's, it's a question that we've been asking ourselves recently. It is. And I don't think we've entirely answered that question, but I think what we have come to realise is that being able to bring you the level of guest interviews and research and chewy policy topics that we've done these past six years is is going to be increasingly hard. Yeah. Ed, Ed has this other job that he does now. I don't quite understand it. And we think, and it's with very heavy hearts, isn't it, that it's time to pull the plug on Reasons to be Cheerful in its current form. Pull the plug? I mean, that's... 
What's a what's a less harsh way of saying it? Wind down, I think. Wind down, yes. Yeah, but having decided to wind down, we thought there's no good time to do this and we're going to do it relatively soon. In other words, uh, we'll do a couple more episodes Yeah, and then that will be it for Reasons to Be Cheerful as you've known it. I suppose the thing we're talking about, and we'd be really interested to hear what you think, is we still enjoy chatting every week. Yeah, and we still want to stay in touch with each other. And we were kind of thinking, well, maybe a a good way of making sure that we sustain this bromance, this late-in-life friendship, is by making sure we have a chat every week. And we were thinking, would you be interested in joining us for that? Is there anything in the idea that Ed and I catch up, share what's going on with us? Have a chinwag. Talk about cold water swimming. Talk about cold water swimming. And then maybe look for some reasons to be cheerful, as it were, in the news or elsewhere and have a chat about that every week. And we're in tentative thinking mode as to whether this works or not, aren't we? Yeah. You know, I don't know how much appetite there is out there for just hearing us wang on versus the type of guests that we've been able to bring you in the last few years. And also, this is the first occasion in six years where I'm going to say, don't email in because you feel you have to to say <laughs> oh we'd like you to carry on yeah if your view is look you should bow out gracefully i mean look it's probably it's it's almost certainly or it, it certainly is the case we're not going to carry on if we're both or either of us is in government jeff in the neighborhood watch i mean i'm thinking of it very much as a when yeah. rather than an if but i know that's not your take exactly but the question is whether there's a sort of uh a bridge to the future as somebody once said who said that bill clinton so that's that's what we're trying to gauge. Yeah. Would you have any interest in spending a bit of time in our company every week? Or would you rather just be shut up at this point? I, I, I mean, you know. Which is uh, fair enough. Yeah. But either way, we're going to be closing this chapter of Reasons to be Cheerful in a couple of weeks' time. Whatever happens, as we draw this iteration to a close, we would love to hear from you. Definitely. With, I guess, the ideas that have resonated or made a difference to you over these past six years? You know, so many people have come up to me over the years who are listeners and said, listening to something had a real effect on what they did in their life or the way they thought about things or you know, diff- it's had different impacts. And it'd be really nice, I think, and gratifying to be able to read those out. And we're recording the last reasons as it is a week on Monday, the 6th of November. So we need to hear from people sooner rather than later, don't we? Cheerfulpodcast.com. And actually, if we get the ideas which people have found the most memorable from the podcast, maybe we can even turn that into a manifesto for the Jeffocracy. Mm. So get in touch with us through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com, or you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Look, we, the truth is we don't know anything. We don't know exactly what the plan is. That's the truth. So we're sort of sharing our decision-making. Yeah, we want, we want to make you a part of this. Yeah. The reason to be cheerful, audience. So that's our news. How are you feeling yes. now? That's off uh, off our chests. Ah, bit sad. Yeah, it is sad. It is sad. Whichever way it goes, it's it's sad to bring the podcast as we've known and loved it to an end. So, should we talk about what we're talking about this week? We should. This week we're covering something very optimistic, which are the results of the Polish election, and it looks like uh, the. Right-wing populist Law and Justice Party will be succeeded by the Civic Coalition led by Donald Tusk. There was a record turnout at the polls driven by women and young people. And we think it's proof that it's possible 
to turn the tide of populism across Europe and indeed the world. We're going to be talking to Piotr Buras for some background on the Polish political situation, to Anne Applebaum for her analysis on what this means for the future of democracy in the country, and finally to climate activist Dominika Lasota, who is part of the campaign to mobilise women in the election. And you know that I, my mother is uh, Polish, so I have a particular interest in this. But not a vote. No vote. Uh, but a particular interest in it. Uh, and indeed, I was in Poland a few months back. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I wasn't around for the interviews this week, so I, I'm looking forward to listening to that. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful. So I was on the train and I, did I borrow a phone charger? I think I borrowed a phone charger from a very nice woman, young woman called Ria. And Ria and I got talking and it turns out that Ria's dad, Alistair, runs a confectionery machine company. Okay. His name is Alistair Bamforth, and it's called Refreshments Systems Limited. And anyway, poor Rhea, I don't think it was sort of what she'd really bargained for, to be honest, <laughs> because I then eventually recorded a video for Alistair about some advice on his... Because he's got a confectionery machine with fruit on it. Can you just go to his website? What's, so it, what's it called again? Refreshment. Refreshment Systems Limited. So what you're saying is a man with an already very successful vending yeah. machine company, yeah. You're, yeah. you're telling him how he should be running his business. Well, actually, worse than that, I'm telling his daughter how should he should be running his business. Uh, here we go, refreshmentsystems.co.uk. There is a machine with fruit in it. This is what got me excited. I'm just scrolling down their website at the moment. I mean, I don't want you to read anything into this, but I am having to scroll a long way down. Oh, there it is. Yeah. But you know what I realised is the sort of design flaw for my fruit vending machines, which mm. is, it actually is related to the bruising issue that you've discussed in the past, but it's not exactly in the way that you expected, which is the confectionery vending machines, they're just arranged in nice, quite inviting horizontal rows because yes. they can do drop down. Whereas these, you have to sort of open the... Um, it's almost like a P.O. box. Yeah. you got to, And so it looks a lot less attractive mm, mm. because you can't imagine an apple sitting there <laughs> ready, to, ready to sort of drop. Can you describe to me the look on Ria's face? as you were explaining at length your idea for healthy vending machines. I think she thought she'd sort of entered a parallel universe, really. She was just very surprised at my level of interest <laughs> in in the in the vending machine sort of situation, and then even more surprised when I offered to record a video for her dad. Did she almost immediately say, oh, actually, I'm off at the next stop, so uh, it's been nice to meet you? I don't think it was a next stop, because I think it was after Peterborough, and, and then it was just going straight to London King's Cross. And then... Get this, the train was stuck for an oh. hour outside uh, outside King's Cross. Oh, that poor woman. I know, honestly, it was like quite tricky for her. I was just able to just sort of go on and on, really. And, and were you going on and on because you envisaged some kind of succession situation where she gets to take the throne at some point? I mean, no. You know, I just you can't stop me talking about vending machines. <laughs> Let's be honest. And God knows I've tried. Yeah. Anyway, what's your reason to be cheerful? New Beatles music. Mm. You seen this in the news? No. The Beatles are releasing their last ever song. It is the last time there will be new music with John, Paul, George and Ringo on it. It is a demo that John Lennon made, a, a, a hissy old, poor quality cassette that they've been able to tidy up using the latest AI technology. So when was it recorded? John Lennon recorded his bit in the 70s. Yeah. 
And then the Beatles worked on a few of these John Lennon demos in the 90s, but they were very limited in terms of what they could do with them because of the sound quality. But the technology has advanced now to a point where they've been able to go back to the stuff they did in the 90s and make it work, and Paul and Ringo have added new bits onto it, and it's going to be the last ever Beatles song. Wow. And it got me thinking that um, there's a future in which you find some old cassette of me long after I'm gone, and you'll be able to generate a brand new podcast using AI technology many years in the future. Maybe this isn't the end, Ed. I'll bear it in mind. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Piotr Buras, who is head of the European Council on Foreign Relations Warsaw Office. Piotr, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Not at all. So the Polish election took place a couple of weeks back. Donald Tusk said it could be the election to save democracy. Talk to us about how important the results were. You know, this election has been hailed as the watershed moment for the Polish democracy and the most important election since um, 1989, which I think is not really vastly exaggerated. After eight years of a right-wing populist government in power, Having this government for yet another term would be a huge risk for the Polish democracy, for liberalism in in Poland, for for the rule of law and civic rights. And of course, nobody knows how that would have ended. But I think Hungary gives a very good example of how what it means basically for populists to stay in power for a very, very long time. And, uh, and I think this this scenario was one which could have come true in Poland as well if the PIS had won this election. But it, it didn't, and <laughs> it's a reason, uh, actually, to be quite optimistic. And just for our listeners who may not be so familiar, how would you summarise the results of the election? The PIS, so the party, the right-wing populist party, which uh, governed Poland for, the, for eight years, became the strongest party, which is interesting that even after eight years of quite uh, you know illiberal rule with lots of violations of, of constitution of quite tough hard right wing positions, you know still thirty six percent of the Polish population supports this party. But three parties of the opposition, uh, liberal left parties, civic coalition led by Donald Tusk and two other parties, which declared during the campaign that they would form a government should they have an absolute majority, they indeed won this absolute majority. They have 248 seats, which is a a solid majority. So there is uh, no way they they could be prevented from, from forming government. And that was a kind of unexpected. I mean, especially the, the magnitude of, of their victory was unexpected. And the main takeaway from this election is that basically you can defeat populists. And the second, I think, important takeaway was an enormous, you know, civic engagement of uh, of the Polish people. You know, the, the turnout was 75%, which is unprecedented in the Polish history. And do we know where the vote broke down? Was it older people who tended to vote for law and justice and younger people who voted for Donald Tusk's coalition? I think the, the, this is, you know, the age factor was particularly important and particularly interesting because, as you as you said, the the older voters always tended to vote for for the PIS for the for the right wing party, while the young people um, have always traditionally been more pro liberal, pro left. 
The problem was um, in the past that the young voters uh, did not vote. Yeah. Because of this very high level of polarization in Poland, they seemed to be completely discouraged to take part in the in the political life. So they didn't that they didn't want to vote. And now that was quite exceptional that you know the the turnout among the youngest voters, those between 18 and 29 years old, was 25 percentage points higher than at the last parliamentary election four years ago, which is quite incredible. And this basically was a decisive factor for the outcome of this election. Talk to us a little bit about what Lord Justice have been doing since 2015 in power. Probably two things are worth uh, mentioning. One is, you know, the PIS social policy. And this is how the party won election 2015 with a promise of uh, introduce a more generous social policy than the liberals. They introduced children allowances. They increased the minimum wage. And that all was very important, I think, for many people in Poland. So uh, so that was overdue, restored a, a sense of dignity also in, among many people. Many people felt kind of uh, looked down to by the political elites or, or neglected or forgotten. So that was on the, on the positive side, in a way. And that was, I think, this source of PIS popularity and, and, and success for the last eight years. On the much more negative note, uh, what the PIS did was uh, basically, I would say, a, a coup d'etat, basically anti-constitutional coup d'etat, which didn't happen overnight. It was step by step. And in a system where we didn't have a level playing field in the political lives. That is something really, truly unprecedented, that the the opposition parties were able to win this election, despite the fact that the election was deeply unfair. And tell us about what Donald Tusk's civic coalition represents for voters, because it was an alliance of the centre-left, the centre and the centre-right, yeah? Yeah, I mean, the, the, this is an alliance of four parties, but, but the civic platform, the party of Donald Tusk, a liberal, uh, liberal conservative so center-right party, and, and Donald Tusk is, the, is a very powerful leader. He will be the, certainly the prime minister of the next government. In the current context of the Polish politics, the, this party represents first and foremost the restoration of the rule of law. Also, a, a very pro-European stance in, um, in foreign European policies. The PIS party was deeply Eurosceptic, so was in a, for most of the time in a deep conflict with, with the Brussels. And this is what, what Tusk is promising to reverse. And it's important in, in light of what I said before that Tusk says we will not reverse the social policy reforms introduced by the PIS. That would be not only deeply unpopular, but it wouldn't be right either. And in terms of the process from here, the president, the Polish president will ask the largest party, which is the PIS, to form a government, but they will be unable to. And then you would expect Donald Tusk to form a government. Is that the way that you think the process will go? This is what it looks like, because it is up to the president, who is a former member of the PIS party and a loyal you know, supporter of the still ruling party, to decide uh, who is the prime minister. President Duda, he faces a kind of a dilemma, because clearly PIS is the largest party. But 
At the same time, as I explained, it doesn't have any chance to form a government. Poland really needs to have a government quickly because, you know, the world is in, in turmoil, the, the situation is, is volatile. Now tell me, Piotr, you look younger than me, so you remember the fall of communism, you were 15. Just trace sort of what this moment means for Poland, you know, as you think about your adulthood, really. I think the, the PIS rule was a, an attempt to, to change the track of the Polish transformation, which started 1989 with the fall of communism. So that was a backlash against uh, this liberal transformation, both in economic and political terms, which we experienced in the 90s. This backlash started not 2015, but 2005, when the PIS came to power for the first time. Basically, all our values, expectations, and then hopes from the early 90s, where, where we were kind of growing up and, and uh, becoming mature citizens, were very, kind of got frustrated. So for me, it is, of course, a major watershed also for my personal uh, biography. And, but I, I think it's, it's also true for, for the generation of my parents, for example, who my parents were in the Solidarity Movement, Solidarność, so this anti-communist opposition during the, the communist time. And for them, this opening to the West and, and European integration and liberalism in Poland, that was something, you know, probably certainly the most important experience in their life. And then so those seeing it deteriorating and, and going down and, and breaking down was, was really very frustrating. But of course, I'm talking about a certain milieu in Poland. I think there is also the other part of the Polish population, which clearly saw it differently. And, and, and I think one needs to be aware of that. And just to end on this note, how then do your friends and family feel now? Do they feel a sense of hope? Yes, definitely. I think there is a very, very deep sense of hope. And I think also a, a hope that not only that, you know, this government uh, will run uh, the country better than the former government, which is, of course, uh, the essence of the change or should be the essence of this of this political change, but also that, you know, the public life in Poland would change. I mean, that, that because, you know, the, this... The level of, of hatred, polarization in Poland is, uh, is incredible. I think something what, what this high turnout or the people who made for this high turnout in this vote on the 15th of October wanted to reject and that there is this relief that perhaps this polarization can disappear or, or get weakened. I don't know to what extent this hope can be you know, fulfilled, can, be, can come true, because we still have a very, some very difficult months ahead, but at least there is this hope. Okay, well, look, that is a hopeful note to end on. Piotr Buras, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So to carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Anne Applebaum, who is staff writer at The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You wrote in The Atlantic uh, after the election, even if you don't live in Poland, don't care about Poland and can't find Poland on a map, take note, the victory of the Polish opposition proves that autocratic populism can be defeated even after an unfair election. Tell us then uh, about the significance of this election. So first of all, it was an unfair election. Um, this was an election the ruling party in Poland had executed over eight years, a consistent program of state capture. So one institution after the next, you know, the prosecution services, the, the security services, but also state companies, state media, um, and they made them all into party institutions. So state media in Poland was something that's very hard to describe to 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 anybody who lives in Britain, and even if even if you don't like the BBC, try to imagine a version of the BBC in which it's you know run by your worst political enemies. It runs smear campaigns. It describes people as traitors and enemies. They you know manipulated the way the election was run. They um, had a carried out a fake kind of referendum campaign alongside the election. So it was a it was really crude, ugly propaganda in coming from all directions. And yet the opposition, which was actually three parties, a center right party, a center left party and a, and a larger sort of center center party, gained a definitive majority. And the ruling party, despite throwing all the money it could and all the effort it could at the campaign, is um, technically the largest party, but they can't form a government. Obviously, in a very dark world, this is a light of, of good news. How did it happen? I mean, before we come on to the wider implications, in the Polish case, how did it happen? How did the opposition succeed? So I think there are two or three important things. The opposition put forward a vision, a kind of optimistic civic patriotism. How do you counter the autocratic nationalism that the ruling party was offering. And their idea was, we will give you patriotism. So every meeting, every demonstration, there were Polish flags, although also EU flags. The conversation was about Poland and Poland's future, but it was it was about what can we do going the forward? How do we look into the future? How do we offer a vision of safety and security that's not just about fear and anxiety. So they they tried to go the other way, you know, to, to do something positive. Um, there was a very important turnout of younger people who historically have not voted much in Poland. Um, and they voted in much higher numbers now this time than they did in the past. We actually had a very high turnout overall. It was 74%, which is really high for Poland. Um, and in the cities, it was 84%, 85% in Warsaw and Poznan and some of the other bigger cities. 
And I think it was partly because younger people understood the election to be about a kind of civilizational choice. You know, either you're going to stay inside the European mainstream, you're going to be connected to the rest of Europe, Poland's going to remain a democracy, or it's going to make do this eccentric experiment of being isolated and being a small autocracy somewhere between Europe and Russia. And I think a lot of younger people understood it exactly like that. And for younger people, to what extent did LGBT issues and the homophobia and all of that play a role? So LGBT were probably important among urban young people. There were a lot, there was the small left party that was one of, one of their big issues. A bigger and more important issue, actually, in terms of motivating people to vote, uh, was abortion. Because, you know, we have in Poland already a very harsh abortion law. It was made even harsher in recent years. So much so that a couple of women have died because they were not given abortions, um, even though they had problematic pregnancies and they died of sepsis. Those cases created a series of, there were so-called women's marches a couple of years ago. Uh, and I think for a lot of younger women, those marches were their first experience of politics. And people understood that, that this government is attacking women and women's rights. And that was a, that was, I think, a big motivating factor all across the country. There was a feeling of, you know, we're modern, we want to be modern. And I think that was very important. As you look at the broader implications of this election for the defeat of kind of populism and kind of right populism, what are the lessons that go beyond Poland, do you think? So one of them, I think this point about civic patriotism is important. You know, you can't let the nationalists take patriotism. In other words, they don't get to define what the nation is and what makes you proud to be a member of the nation. You know, you have to offer a different vision. What does it mean to be Polish? Offering people a unified sense of, of, of who they are, um, it was important. I mean, in Poland, because of proportional representation, it was also possible to offer slightly different versions of opposition. So there was a center-right, center-left, and, you know, center-center option that people had, unified under the banner of civic patriotism, but not not allowing people to fragment into, you know, into into fractions. I mean, there was some some lesson in there. It's harder to apply in a first-past-the-post system. And I guess one debate about the, the sort of uh, seeds of this these movements, these populist, right-wing populist movements, is economic, the economic question. If you think about Trump, he fed on the idea that American wages hadn't gone up, all of which are, you know, I tend to think are quite valid concerns. Obviously, he wasn't the solution to them. To what extent was the kind of Polish right based on, on that, on the sense of the system either delivering or failing to deliver for people? I disagree, actually, with a lot of the analysis of both of Trump and of Poland. Poland had um, a really extraordinary economic record going back to 1989-90 from the moment they you know, created their reforms. And if you look at it in comparison, really every social class in Poland had risen, had, had become wealthier over the previous 20 years. Actually, there had been tremendous growth. And really, there's almost no one in Poland who is not richer than their parents you know, or their grandparents. And so you have to look at Poland, you have to look more at cultural explanations than at purely economic explanations. Actually, I think that's the case in the U.S. too. It's not just about social class, because actually the poorest Americans didn't vote for Trump. 
um, and quite a lot of middle class and wealthy Americans did. Uh, and so there was what mattered as much was a cultural perception of being left behind as a pure economic one. Um, and so for a lot of a lot of Poles who come from rural Poland or provincial Poland felt somehow culturally left behind by, you know, the cities were were dynamic and 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 the, you know, the social mores were changing. And I mean, for example, gay rights became a flashpoint because it was something that was accepted by people in urban areas, but not people in rural areas. And economic inequality? So again, you know, yes, um, although Poland, I don't think by international standards is particularly unequal. It's more equal than Britain, for example. Um, and in 2015, when we had this changeover, actually inequality was lessening. Again, some of the inequality is economic, some, some of it is perceptual. The election results look then like uh, good news. Is there going to be a sort of peaceful transfer of power, as the Americans would put it? I can't predict exactly right now what they might do to prevent, you know, a, a different government from coming to power, but I'm sure they're working on it. At the very least, it's going to be very, very slow. Unfortunately, we don't have the thing that you have in Britain where, you, where power changes hand the next day. Um, my sort of instinct is that the result was so decisive and it was more decisive than people expected. And it was a surprise result and the turnout was very, very high. So I think it's going to be hard for them to say, to make up a version of, of, the, of the Stop the Steal campaign that implies that somehow they they deserve to remain in power, you know, but, but we'll see. Last question. What, what does this mean for Poland in relation to the European Union and more generally, do you think? I mean, assuming that the transfer of power takes place. It's hugely important. I mean, it will put Poland back in the mainstream. The role of Poland in the last year has been, on the one hand, you know, they have been very important in the fight against Russia and Ukraine. You know, most of the U.S. weapons and European weapons have gone through Poland they were an important part of that alliance. At the same time, they were their relations with Germany were so bad that there was no relationship. I mean, there was almost no conversation, no meetings. Their relationship with the EU was terrible. They, you know, they spent a lot of time attacking the EU during their campaign. Um, they really had essentially no friends. There will be a, now a different Poland, which is cooperative, which works with Germany and France to help Ukraine, and which could um, eventually play a really important role in bringing Ukraine into Western institutions. So Poland will become a kind of much more um, important advocate for Ukraine and a more powerful player diplomatically, I think. Okay. Well, look, that is a good note to end on and an optimistic one. Uh, Anne Applebaum, thanks so much. Thank you. To carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Dominika Lasota, who is a climate activist and co-founder of the climate campaign group Schwud. Sorry about my translation, <laughs> uh, which translates to East or Sunrise. Dominika, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting. It's a, it's a big joy for me to, to, to speak with you after such an election, honestly, because it's, it's been a crazy roller coaster. I can imagine. So talk to us about how you were feeling before the elections on the 15th of October. Before the 15th of October, um, we were all in this mode of we're doing everything we can and we're doing everything to try to change essentially those who are in power in Poland. Because after eight years of the ruling party of law and justice, after eight years of the right wing governing Poland, we realized that like if there will not be the shift in power 
It's not sure if we'll have another free elections. It's not sure if there is any kind of progress possible in Poland. So we have to do everything we can to just give ourselves a chance for something different. And so I was honestly, I was I was terrified, but I was also feeling like I was so focused on the campaign, on the mobilizing of youth and women. Just before we get into what you did in the campaign, Dominika, tell us about how you got involved in politics and, and the origins of your group. For sure. So my, my activism started when I was 18. I was just after high school and it was the height of the pandemic. I grew up in this, I think, kind of naive belief that the adults, you know, get it together and have everything under control. The pandemic showed very directly that, you know, those in power do not really have a plan on how to handle crises. And then kind of growing up with the awareness of the climate catastrophe um, and then seeing how during the pandemic it was all even shifted to, you know, the back burner even more than, than, than before. I was like, okay, well, I have to get involved in order to not feel so terrified and hopeless in the face of the crises. And so this is when I joined the, the youth climate strike in Poland, which was the, the Polish version of Fridays for Future. And since then, since 2020, I kind of, once I stepped into activism, I feel like I will never be able to step out. It was the climate first for me, but then we've had obviously big women's strikes that erupted after the the the, the government banned um abortion in Poland. And ever since I I was building the climate movement in Poland, but later on, especially when the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened, um, I realized that my my work and everything that is happening in front of us is something much bigger, that we are kind of facing this big system failure, I would say. And so that is when with my friends, we set up the Wschud initiative and Wschud in Polish means both the sunrise and the east. So we very often say that, you know, we're like a sunrise from the Eastern Europe, that we are the people that we've been waiting for for so long that we're trying to carry the, the hope, but also kind of the change that we desperately need in the times of crises. And and Schwood is a climate campaign, as you say, but it also identified a link to the rights of women and gender equality, yeah? Exactly. You know, I, I, I find it a bit kind of tricky right now to call myself a climate activist. And that is why the, the reason behind it is that I just feel like, you know, that I'm not just worried about the end of the world. In Poland, majority of the people are worried about the end of the month. And um, majority of, of women in my country, so of my people, you know, the, the, the discrimination, the violence, the struggles that they are facing on a daily basis are very different. And they are not just the climate. I would say that they're, they're so much more than just that. And, and I also realize that if we are, you know, to save the planet, we need to meet people where they are at and we need to really address the many different struggles that they are facing and propose kind of this um, alternative political vision that is ecological, but that is social, most importantly, in order to, to save the planet, but important, most importantly, to really take care of our people. And talk to us about the We Are 52% campaign that you ran, which was complemented by a big campaign on social media, which was about the voting power of women. What you just mentioned was was essentially the last weeks and months of, of our work. 
something that I took um, from the Brazilian movements and civil society back when they are when they were fighting with Bolsonaro is that they said, you know, there are so many different groups within the civil society, within the movements that very often they are focused on different things. But there are moments when we need to come together around a very specific common focus in order to be able to then later on fight for you know, our topics. And so this is something that we established early on in the year that those elections will be a big milestone. Identifying that we really need to focus on that was the first thing we did. The second thing we did was we were we started to think like, okay, if we want essentially to shift those who govern, how do we do this? Like, how do we actually get law and justice so the right-wing party from power. They've been so powerful, like they seemed unremovable. So we realized that we as youth female activists, we will be most relatable to our people and our people are women and youth. And we started kind of checking it with the social polls. And it turned out that women and youth and especially young women are the most demotivated group when it comes to these elections among everyone. So that was a bit of a shock. And then we just did everything. We went to music festivals to speak people about the vote. We collaborated with a film crew who created this beautiful short video that kind of captured different struggles that women face currently in Poland. And then in the background, there were the noises and the comments of politicians who were like insulting women and so on. So that created this like bizarre effect of, you know, of them being so annoying, but us still staying silent. And that is where our slogan, we won't be silent anymore, came around. And indeed, you had a massive, massive increase in youth turnout. I think 68% of voters aged under 29 turned out. The right to an abortion, uh, LGBTQ rights, they were an important part of it too, yeah? I think it was something major, like a bigger anger with with the government than, than, than just those topics. We also highlighted and focused on like the, the struggles that people face on, on a daily basis. And so the cost of living, for example, and inflation was a big topic in all the conversations we've had with, with women. It was also like basic, basic stuff like the fact that to certain towns, to a lot of towns in Poland, the public transport doesn't reach, you know, so that's one thing that the women were, were really angry about or women were really angry about the general state of the healthcare system. Now that Donald Tusk has won the election, looks likely to be the prime minister, what does it mean for the future of climate, the approach to climate change uh, and the climate crisis in Poland? Well, this is a big question mark, I think. I think our victory, the victory of the democratic option in Poland, opens new doors for the climate, for sure. It opens finally the doors for even any kind of sensible debate to happen around climate policy, around energy policy, around the just and green transition of our country, because that has that has just not been happening for the past eight years. So I think with the victory of the democratic opposition and not just Donald Tusk, that there are new doors opening. However, I am absolutely not naive to believe that they will essentially, you know, fulfill our demands and do whatever is needed to meet the climate crisis. Um, unfortunately, there are still many pro-coal, pro-fossil fuels politicians from the opposition that will be now 
in the ministries, in the parliament, in some decision-making positions. Donald Tusk himself is unfortunately still very conservative when it comes to the climate. And from many different people around him, I've heard that he's just too scared to talk about that topic because it's too too difficult to handle. But, you know, like we are 100% ready to push them, to demand very concrete things from them, to strike to do actions, to get essentially what we need for this crisis to be solved. So I'm glad that we have even something to think about and that we have some possibilities for, for, for fighting and for campaigning in our country. Last question, which is you've obviously uh, had great success and I think lots of people will feel very inspired hearing you. What What can young people from other countries, other campaign groups learn from what you've achieved, do you think? I think the biggest takeaway for me personally from from this election work is that victories are still possible. Because I think that in times like we have right now, in times of crises, in times of kind of tragedy happening all over, like all around us, it very often seems like nothing is possible anymore, no matter how much work you put in, like how much effort and how much, you know, sweat and, and tears you're going to give into this fight that nothing really moves forward. And I think the fact that we managed to get this very autocratic, undemocratic government out of power after eight years of their ruling after eight years of them creating a sense that they are unremovable, that shows that the power of the people is really so much bigger than the people in power. It was very symbolic for me because on the day of the election results, I posted this video of my reaction to hearing the news and I cried and I laughed and I screamed and everything. And I just posted that because I felt like, you know, I it, it's, it's such a moment that I want to remember and I also want people to see that we can get emotional over this. And my friend from Hungary um, texted me and she said that I hope I will be able to cry like this one day. That really struck me and I was lost for words. And I'm sure that in any other country out there that in which people fight so badly for, for change, for security, like the UK... I am sure that that change is possible. It's not a one-man show and a one-man victory. It wouldn't be possible without women, without the youth. And we are coming for our rights. We are coming for what we deserve in this country. We are coming for that change for which we've been fighting for for so long. Autocracy is not inevitable. Democracy is still possible. It is possible to get even the most awful guys out of office. Well, look, that is a fantastic note to end on. It's incredibly inspiring to hear you, uh, Dominica Lasota. Many congratulations and thank you so much for joining us. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho. We're in the outro, ho, ho. We are, ho, ho, ho. And we do want to hear from you. We genuinely don't know what to do beyond the end of this version of Reasons to Be in a couple of weeks. If you think, yeah, I'd, uh, I'd be up for something a bit looser and just spending time in your company, 
every week, then great, let us know. If you think, come on guys, dignity. Just say so long and thanks for all the fish. Then we'd like to hear that as well. And even if you don't have a view about that, please do tell us your sort of reasons, memories and reasons impact because we'd love to read them out on the air for our last episode. You can get in touch with us through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com or email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. I'd like to thank our guests, Piotr Buras, Anne Applebaum and Dominika Lasota. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, backed up by Joe Kenyon from Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be Cheerful. Reasons to be Cheerful.